0: morning everyone, it's good to see you. I love that, the sound of the the lulled um, anticipation as it falls across the room, um, as we prepare ourselves to receive the Word of God. Um, It's a blessing to see you all and it's a blessing to be sharing today, continuing in our series, Bonafide Faith. Bonafide Faith. And our um, theme today is bona fide faith loves equally. Now, if you've um, been around um, Ecclesia for um, uh, a little while, you may know that our vision, that which we hope to be, is a healthy church equipped to disciple and faithful on mission. Now, It's important that any vision that we have is a vision that we're not easily attaining as such. It's a vision that always ought to be challenging us and stretching us and causing us to aspire to be what we are not yet. And so we appreciate that that is our vision of who we desire to be as mandated by Scripture. And yet recognize that we're not there yet. And I'm sure that I can get more than a few amens from the bold. We're not there yet. And yet we thank God that he is committed to build his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen. Amen. So we know that as a work in progress, we have the master builder at work in our hearts and lives. He's at work among us and he doesn't fail. Neither hell nor the devil nor our own weakness can stop God from achieving what he sets out to achieve, because he's God. And so we recognize that as we continue to have faith, bona fide faith, that God will do his work in us, changing and transforming us to be that healthy church that we desire to be. And what does that mean? A church that is healthy in relationship with God and with one another. We recognize that church isn't a place. It isn't even an event or a meeting. It is a people, the Lord's bride. And so, if we're truly going to evaluate health, it's going to be defined by, first and foremost, the health of our relationships with God, individually and corporately. But then also... The health of our relationships with one another. Now, as we approach this text today, I know that it's going to be somewhat helpful to us, albeit in a challenging way, because it's going to address those issues um, and those relational issues that can arise and do arise in church life and in our church life specifically, um, in ways that we're going to be able to receive the medicine of God's word in that regard. Now, I have been in pastoral ministry for about 15 years um, as an elder. Um, And so prior to the church being planted, um, maybe about 13 years ago, Um, We were leading a Bible study, myself and Pastor Rob and Pastor Patrick, who leads um, Calvary Chapel East Dulwich. We were leading a Bible study for a few years. It was a Friday night Bible study. Um, Informally, we used to call it Friday Feeling because it was just a wonderful time of fellowship. We were just getting it in. And um, out of that grew the church. And prior to um, us being sent out, um, we were um, recognized as elders within the, the local church at Calvary Chapel in Westminster, where we were. And one of the things that um, has been fairly consistent in my life as a Christian, as the Lord's been working in my life, is a real commitment to be me. And so when I got into pastoral ministry, and let me say that um, a commitment to be me, but not in a sense of me above Christ, um, a commitment to allow Christ to work in and through me, as I am. And so as I got into pastoral ministry, um, people kind of used to, to pose this question and come across this question quite often. Sometimes it may be in the context of a pastor's conference or maybe in conversation and so on um, with somebody out on the street and so on, and um, people understand that I'm a pastor. And the first response would be, so you're a youth pastor. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, a, I'm a pastor and they say oh oh so um how many youth in your, in your and and it's, they just like refused to understand what i was like they refused to understand what i was saying and so i never ever felt the need to kind of push the um the issue and like put some respect on my name you got you got to understand that i'm a part like it it there wasn't a necessity of that it was just a matter of okay that's how you see me now For some people, they couldn't make the transition from the individual who was involved in music ministry, using hip-hop as a missional tool, to being a pastor and still looking the same. Still looking the same. So I remember speaking to somebody one day, well, more than one occasion I had this conversation. Uh, And I was, yeah, I'm I'm a pastor, and they're like, well, you don't really look like a pastor. And I was like, "Mm, okay, obvious next question. What does a pastor look like? Well, I know you don't look like one. And so that was a common response that I encountered. And there was a certain level of, um, whether it be peer pressure or cultural pressure to actually conform to what is seen to be The pastoral look. Now, I had gone on a journey where my identity as an individual in Christ had been um, refined by fire. (laughs) Really. Um, Many, many conflicting conversations and so on where I was being judged as to whether or not I was a Christian because of the way that I looked. And um, some of you... I've heard stories of how I was judged because back in the day, I had uh, a high-top, short back and sides fade, uh, kind of kid and play style cut, uh, um, uh, airport runway part in the front, and you know, and, and that's how I presented myself. And I was questioned on numerous occasions. Son, are you saved? You backslide? And for the legalists in my context, they, it was too much for them. They felt that I looked worldly. And so I'd been through that experience and had to question in my heart, Lord, where am I going wrong? Am I going wrong? Because I was genuinely desiring to please God. And when my elders are speaking to me and saying, something doesn't look right, you don't look saved, you don't look sanctified, you don't look blood-washed, Holy Ghost filled, I had to kind of take a step back and say, hmm, Okay. Am I missing this somewhere if I'm genuinely going to want to please God, right? Because it's easy to get defensive. And in our pride, you don't know me. You can't see my heart. You can talk to me like that. But if we're genuinely, humbly wanting to seek to please God, we will, we will hear criticism and we will examine ourselves, but not merely in the light of the criticism, in the light of God's word. Because at the end of the day, it's his view that matters above all things. So I read in First Samuel 17, God is not like man, he doesn't look on the outward appearance but he looks on the heart. And I'm like, hmm, I feel that there's something wrong in, this, in these encounters that I'm having where people have this perception that I'm supposed to look a certain way or talk a certain way or behave a certain way in order to be regarded legitimately as a Christian. And accepted as a Christian, or later on, as the case may be, as a pastor. Now, I dare say that there are even some among us who have looked at me and said, you know, I love Pastor Eno, you know, but I really wish that he would look a little more, <laughs> a little more serious, a little less like the roadman them. Yeah. Is that nervous laughter, yeah? Because you know it's true. I wish they looked a little more sensible, especially when I've got my cap on right in the pulpit. I know, I know that that's how some people feel, although you may not say that to me. And so I say, Really? Okay. That's why I love Pastor Robbie now. (laughs) Because at least he comes across a little more refined. Mm. Amen, amen, amen. Work with me, work with me. Let's let's have this conversation today. No, 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 no. No, 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 I think we all need prayer. (laughs) And the reality is that our hearts can have a certain level of partiality because of the way that we perceive people, because they don't conform to our sensibilities. But we don't really stop to think, actually, do they conform to Christ? And so we're going to be looking at James chapter 2 verses 1 to 13 and um, I'm going to read the first verse and then pray. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness toward us today. We thank you, Lord, for the way in which you have reached out through Christ to us. And you met us exactly where we were, where we are. And you bid us, you invited us to come. And Lord, you didn't lay before us. Any expectations of needing to, to, to traverse hurdles and to jump through hoops. You gave your son and said, It is well. As he cried, It is finished. You said, Amen. By raising him from the dead. And so, Lord, we recognize that as we come before you today, we can only come as we are. Despite our outward appearance, we recognize our own sinfulness, Lord, and yet are aware that you've invited us to come through Christ. Help us, Lord, as we see the reality of that, as it impacts our lives. And how we receive and respond to one another. Have your way, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, James is speaking to Christians. He's already in the previous verse, as we finish chapter 1, spoken of what true religion ought to look like. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so, James has highlighted the need for those who are truly in the faith to have consideration for those who are in need. And it's almost an extension of that thought now as we step into the next chapter, knowing that in the original there are no chapter divisions. My brothers show no partiality And that could read, show no partialities, plural. There are different ways in which we show partiality to one another. There are different ways in which we are guilty of showing partiality. In the following verses, James gives the example of how one can show partiality Between someone who is rich and someone who is poor. Verse 2. For if a man wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing. And say you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man. You stand over there. Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James is showing, look, for example, as an illustration, somebody with money comes into the congregation, they come into fellowship, and would you be guilty of showing partiality to that person? showing favor toward that person in contrast to a poor person with shabby clothing. Maybe they smell a bit. Now there's no doubt just on a basic level, we know that even if we're not so inclined to show partiality to someone who's rich, we can show a disregard for someone who's poor. Someone who doesn't have their self altogether. Someone who doesn't present them in a, in themselves in a way that we would kind of feel comfortable around. And yet the challenge is that we're not to show any partiality. We're to receive one just as we would receive the other. somebody who's rich. Maybe, let's exchange rich for a celebrity. There are many different ways in which these partialities can be expressed. And so, let's change that for a celebrity. And we hear, okay, so, um, whichever celebrity is that you kind of have some level of regard for. And to be honest, the reality is that even if you didn't have a great deal of regard for them, depending on their level of celebrity, you would still have a certain influence on your heart. So if a service was preparing this morning, um, you know we saw Kanye West and Kim Kardashian pull up outside and start making, you think they're going to the leisure center to, to, to go to the gym, they're making their way into service. There would be a ripple, there would be a murmur at least. Now you may not have any respect or regard for Kanye, or Kim, and for their, the basis of their celebrity status, but there would be some kind of, whoa, hold on a minute. You know, that, that, that's Kanye West coming in here, you know? As you're parking your car, hold on, stop. Is that Kanye West going into church? Is that Kim Kardashian? Just lost your parking space, but you don't care, because you're just... Are they going into Ecclesia this morning? Let me hurry up, I mean, you know, I'm gonna park in the car park, I'm paying money, I don't care. And let me, let me get inside quick and see if this is really happening. Now, I feel that I'm blessed to fellowship among sober-minded people. So I don't really suggest that anybody's going to be falling over themselves. I don't suggest that anybody's really going to be tongue-tied and cotton-mouthed as They come in, but at the same time, they're going to, one, catch your attention, and two, you might be inclined, especially if you don't see anyone talking to them, to go over and greet them. Good morning. You may not even call them by their first names because you don't want to be (laughs) over-familiar. Good morning. My name's Ephraim. It's, It's nice to see you here today. And yet, would somebody who was homeless, coming in with their bags, how many layers of clothes, none of which have been washed for months, would they receive the same reception? Honestly, would anybody even notice that they were coming in the building? See, it exposes how, regardless of the fact that both are visitors, maybe visiting for the first time, how we can be very much inclined to partiality as we make judgments between a person's status. And yet, we're not to do that. There are other ways in which we show partiality. It may be from a cultural point of view. It may be from a class point of view. It's funny because just as much as people have looked at me and said, "Yeah, you know, you don't really look like a pastor or you don't look like a Christian. Or there have been those who have been like, wow, you don't look like a pastor, you know. And I just love that. I love the fact that you just look like a regular genuine person. I mean, furthermore, I don't understand why pastors have to wear suits all the time, like, like this is a business, and they're businessmen. It just makes me feel like they're wanting to get in my pockets. And so I hear that kind of response. And I hear that there are those people who are from a life experience and a cultural background where they don't, a business suit doesn't mean anything to them. They don't relate to that. They don't respect that or appreciate it even for whatever connotations it may have. Some of which the gospel needs to work out in their lives. Some of them is anti-authoritarian. I only ever had police, lawyers, teachers all pointing the finger at me in suits. And maybe in their life they deserve to have the finger pointed at them because they were rude and out of order. But that's the baggage they walk with. And yet, they feel more comfortable, they feel more accepting of someone who might look like me. They feel more that that, that a pastor who looks like this might be more accessible to them. I feel like there's there's, there's a a kind of a strata, if you like, of our society, a strata of community that to some extent, universally, tends to get marginalized, tends to get kind of left to the side, overlooked, and showed um, unfavorable partiality, partiality against them. And I would say, you're probably thinking, hmm, who's that that he could be speaking of? Mm -mm, Is it Muslims? No, I'm not speaking about Muslims. You know what I'm speaking about? I'm speaking about youth. Now, let me show you how I have been guilty of that in my own way. I live in New Cross. I live next to Goldsmiths, basically. Studentsville. Hold tight, all the students. I love you. But... <laughs> You know, as soon as I say, but, that's a problem, right? <laughs> I'm not a racist, <laughs> but. <laughs> as soon as I say, but, now, nah, so I'm going to show my bias and my sinfulness. After a, a short time of living in New Cross, and it's, you know, there's, there's students' hostels, and there's students' Um, halls of residence, and there's students in houses, and there's students, bruv, students everywhere. And at first, you know, I'm kind of young at heart, and I'm thinking, it's cool. Be great, miss young, vibrant creatives, you know, until they're drunk. (laughs) Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, early Sunday morning. And they're doing the things that drunk students do knock over the bins. Like, uh, we, we, we've taken to parking, and come, especially come the weekend, I put both my wing mirrors in, not for fear of passing traffic, but for fear of drunk students. I'm not ready for a drunk student to take my wing mirror off in their drunken haze. And so, I kind of I, I, I developed somewhat of a disdain, these students, and I began to look at students the same. Man, they just get drunk, act a fool. Like. Now these are students doing what students do. But I developed, uh, Ken's looking at me, she, she was a student recently. I'm looking at them, they're making up loud noise into early hours in the morning, drinking games, music, Outside, keeping up, shouting at one another up and down the street. And I'm just like, enough already. Why don't you lot just grow up? Get a life. I thought you were supposed to be in university accomplishing something. How can you be achieving anything with your life living like this? That was me, and I'm just being honest about how I have felt in my bias against these young people. Now, I know for some of you, you can relate. (laughs) Because there are so many young people who are just young people, even if you take some of the younger generation, younger than your uni students, your secondary school students, secondary pupils and so on, and you don't want to get on the bus at 3: four o'clock when school's out. Huh? <laughs> you hate it. Now, furthermore, some of you work in schools, so you know It's so easy for us to have a bias, a bias against these young people. And the reality is that even as I've worked in schools, I've seen this to be a real problem with how young people are are, are perceived and the opportunities that they're given. Because generally the attitude I've seen is the attitude that a lot of us take. We will not accept you, we will tolerate you in as much as we're able to change you. I want to make you like me. And on that basis, I'm prepared to work with you. But at at any given point, when it seems obvious that I'm not going to be able to make you like me, then you know what? Get out of here. I'm finished with you. You see? Impartiality and acceptance doesn't look like tolerance. Impartiality and acceptance doesn't look like, well, you know what? I will tolerate you as much as I'm able to, to work on you and change you and make you see things like me. And as I'm working in schools in South London and seeing teachers who, they come from a different cultural background. They have a different worldview. You got these, we were working in troubled schools. So you got these quote unquote ghetto youths. And they've come from the background that they've come from and they've had the experience that they've had. And there's definitely something in me that was biased toward them because I relate in terms of where I've come from and my journey. And so I just felt inclined to love them. But my mission wasn't to try and dismiss the good things about their lives, to disregard the, the things that were real for them in terms of their culture, and in terms of the things that they were able to be celebrated. My goal was to be able to recognize the good, not just be dismissive of everything, and help them grow in those areas that they need to grow in. And yet, all the while affirming them as individuals made in the image of God. Who, ha- who are worthy of respect and dignity. And yet, so many problems arose because teachers didn't have that heart. And they didn't have that attitude. They could see nothing good. It's a bit like the um, Jews saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he can't be the Messiah. He came from Nazareth, right? I mean, nothing good can come. It's like, can anything good come out of Peckham? (laughs) Amen. Amen. See, Ozzy's from Peckham. (laughs) So there's the answer right there. How you interpret the answer, whoa, that's up to you. (laughs) Nothing but love, sister. You're the bonafide, definitely. Of course, good things can come out of Peckham, or Brixton, or Peeps Estate, or, of course. But when people have that stereotypical attitude of nothing good can come out of their culture, and everything is written off, that person then becomes stripped of any sense of identity that they may cling to. This works on ethnic levels. Ghanaians, Nigerians, Jamaicans, English, Welsh. I mean, we can go through all of the different nationalities. I was in Scotland this summer, um, only the second time I've ever been there. And there's no doubt that the Scottish I mean we've seen it in the in the polls recently, right? The Scottish National Party swept away in the in the um in the in the polls. And there was just a clear sense of we're Scots and we're not trying to have the same kind of subjection to the English in a way that, I mean, William Wallace, man, brave Those days are over. Now, as I went there as an Englishman, there was no doubt that they kind of seemed to give me a pass. Maybe it's because, you know, there's something about the camaraderie of the oppressed. Like, You can be from an oppressed background and see someone else who's from a different background to you, but they've been oppressed and there's a kind of, there's a camaraderie there, there's a love there. And so maybe they're looking at me as a black English man and thinking, yeah, we know what you go through, so. (laughs) You're all right. I don't know. But generally, they can be very standoffish with English people. Am I lying? In the same way that I know back in the day, Jamaicans and Nigerians didn't agree. Am, am, I, am, am, I, am I talking truth today? Yeah? So there are all kinds of levels in which we can exercise partiality. And yet we are being challenged not to. And what does it say? It says in verse 4, Have you then made distinctions among yourselves And become judges with evil thoughts. Now, James is speaking to Christians. This should not be happening among Christians. Where we're drawing distinctions between ourselves. And we're showing partiality on the basis of richness and poorness. Oh, they're so uneducated and they're really just so lazy. Or... Everyone in a suit is suspicious. I don't get down with anyone in suits. These things should not be named amongst us. We shouldn't be having love for people that are A, able to benefit us, or B, simply please us. That's the point here. See, there's a sense in which the rich person can potentially be a benefit can show favor, splash cash. And so I can benefit from this relationship in some way. Let me ingratiate them. It's a sin. However else, some people or peoples or people group may please us. We may feel affirmed by them. We may feel approved by them. They're like me or they like the things that I like. In such a way that it causes us to be partial against others. It's a sin. Become judges with evil thoughts. You see, we're not rightly regarding one another when we do that. The thoughts are evil. We're not giving due consideration for the fact that, A, this is somebody who is made in the image of God. Made by God, deserving of respect, worthy to be regarded with dignity, regardless of how undignified they may come across to you based on your cultural sensibilities. That's how we're to see one another. And yet, secondly, we're to see one another on the basis that we are one in Christ. You see, you notice in the first verse, it says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The common denominator, the common ground is the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we recognize as being one in Christ, we are one in Christ, and there are no distinctions that should divide us. There are no distinctions that should cause us to feel rejected or disapproved or by anyone. Because we're one in Christ. Now, how did, how did you become one in Christ? How did you come to a place where you would hold faith in Christ? Was it not that God in his mercy and grace reached out to you? And he gave you what you did not deserve and could not afford He gave it to you as a gift. We know that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. It's not of ourselves. And so God granted salvation as a gift to you. You who really and truly, actually, he had every reason to be partial against you. And so when we consider the fact that we're in Christ, when we consider the fact that we hold the common faith with those who, like us, profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have come to God through the sacrificial work of Christ. Uh, he given himself. Our faith isn't an empty faith. It isn't a blind faith. Our faith is in a person, the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, who came, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died a sinner's death in my place, in your place, so that you could be received into the kingdom. And so we stop and we think, actually, if this is how I have come into right relationship with God, and I I, I have come into a place of common ground with those who profess his name, how can I then? We have to say, how can I then not be, how can I not be wicked in having partiality against others. How can it not be evil thoughts? Because of some superficial distinction that we've clung onto in our own minds. I only hang with the people who used to go to the church that I used to go to. I only hang with the people that come, you know, understand the culture that I come from. I only, I only get with the people that like the things that I like. I only hang with the educated. I only ha- like the ones that like hip-hop music. I only like... They're the people that I gravitate towards. They're the people I make time for. They're the people I'll reach out to. They're the people I'll invite around my house. Everyone else, well, you know, it's always wonderful to see them. But that's, you know, no new friends, right? So <laughs> sin. And we should be ashamed. And then we hear people say, you know, church is so clicky. And it's true. Now everybody's not going to be your best friend. But we should have an open heart and open arms to everybody. The beautiful thing about this is that as we consider the fact that God has shown his love to us in Christ, in embracing us, even when we feel reluctant because we don't really know someone, we ought to feel so secure in God's love and so secure in God's acceptance, so secure in in, in his embrace, that we're ready to make ourselves vulnerable to connect with that person that we don't really know And and to get to know them. Proverbs says, he who has a friend must first show himself friendly. Must first take the initiative. It's like there was a man who set up his email when emails first come out and he, uh, he said to another man, he said, you know what, I don't get any emails, you know. Not one. Go to my email box every day, look in my emails, don't see any emails. This email thing is no good. I don't really see the point of it so the man said to him, okay, um, have you given your address to anyone? Have you sent any emails to anyone? Oh, I never thought of that. Now you and I know that these days, you send one email and your your box is full of spam. (laughs) Junk filters bursting. But the reality is, there was a need to take initiative and put oneself out there. This is what the Bible teaches us. Jesus said, if you say hello to your friends only, what good is that? Even the Gentiles do that. How are you any different? How are you transformed? How is there any evidence of bona fide faith in your life? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So, those people that you don't really check for in the body of Christ, God has chosen them. God has chosen the poor. And, you know, the reality is that this is speaking of the poor as to the illustration, but it's broader than that. We understand that. And when it speaks of the poor, it's not just speaking about the poor in terms of spiritually poor. So in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. But then in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you who are poor. You see, there is a sense in which God has regard for the poor. God has a particular interest in those who are deprived and from deprived backgrounds. This isn't just talking about those who recognize themselves as being spiritually poor, which is fundamental to all of us. It's fundamental to anyone who actually has come into relationship with God, recognizing that actually I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have no worth or value that I can present to God based upon which he would accept me. Furthermore, I'm, I'm not just... I'm I'm in deficit, I'm in debt because I'm a sinner and I've sinned against God, rebelled against his will and I've done so willfully. So I have nothing to bring to God. I'm truly poor spiritually. Amen. That is the basis upon which we approach God genuinely. And yet, why is it that God has a, a particular inclination a particular attention to those who are literally poor, financially and socially deprived. Look at this. Coming from the Old Testament. Job 5, 15 to 16. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Psalms 9.18 For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And I mean, you can just go and do a word search on on poor in the scriptures and see there is an abundance of of texts that speak to those who are poor socially and economically. Psalm 10.17 Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear. Psalm 69, 33, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Psalms 109, 31, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Jeremiah 20, 13, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evil doers blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god there is a necessity for us to acknowledge our spiritual poverty for anyone to recognize that. And we see that related to in chapter one. Let the poor man rejoice at his exhortation. Let the rich man at his humiliation. See, even all earthly riches can do nothing when coming before God. And yet, we recognize that God has an inclination or gives attention to the poor because as we saw in a number of those verses, poor people are often those who are oppressed, who are held back, who are denied opportunities, who are denied access, who are denied favor. I heard, um, I, I watched uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, um, interview, uh, uh, what do you call it? Documentary. Um, this week, so um, my wife Judith, she's had a foot operation, and um, she's at home with her foot up, off work six weeks, and so I had to install Netflix in the bedroom. And I <laughs> <laughs> Literally, had to install it. It was a madness, but I got I got there. Praise be to God, because I knew it was a win-win situation. <laughs> and so she showed me this this documentary about. Um, Tupac and Biggie. Anyway, in the midst of this documentary, there's an interview with Suge Knight, he's in prison. He said, I got a message to the kids. Now you're thinking, Suge Knight, what kind of message are you really gonna give to the kids? (laughs) Suge Knight, for those who don't know, is a a record label owner from um, LA, California. Um, His record label is known as Death Row Records. Um, And it was very much a kind of iconic West Coast hip hop label and yet, the way he ran his label, he ran it with, with a street code. And so deals were done with guns on the table. And you know which way those deals are going, right? Etc. Etc. you have all of these stories. So he's in prison, and he's, he's been incarcerated for whatever crimes he's committed, and he's got this message to the kids. And in the midst of his message, he's saying, look, you know what, you see these rappers, and you see them, and they're going out there, and they're rapping about this stuff, and then they're living this street life, and then they're getting arrested, and they're not going to prison. So don't try and live like that, because they have high-priced lawyers that get them off. They can afford the best lawyers to get them off their cases. But when you're poor, you don't have access to that kind of power and and that kind of help, and you're gonna go to jail. And it's a simple recognition of the limitations and the hindrances people who don't have access to knowledge in university they don't have access to pay for people with knowledge and they get taken advantage of and get oppressed someone talking with someone the other day and they were like um, this person was trying to sort out school issues for their child and they said um, oh did you know about this, this opportunity for you and, and it was like, whoa! I didn't know that I could get that help for my child, and they said, like, yeah. But they don't tell you that. You just got to need to know how, know that to ask. My granny used to have this saying. I never really properly understood it at the time. The hardest thing is to know. I'm waiting for the rest. <laughs> I'm waiting for the punchline. The hardest thing, Sam. The hardest thing is to know. One of her many sayings. Kian's heard me repeat this in my house. What does that mean? Sometimes the thing that stands between you and success is just a little bit of knowledge. But if you don't have it, you're finished. No progress. And these are means by which those in power and those with money and those with connections oppress the poor. And we see it all the time. Listen. Wow. Okay. So, I see this, we we know that there's been an absolute madness going on in America, and even over here, but not on the same scale, with those law enforcement officers unjustly treating people, yeah? And black people seem to be very much at the forefront of that, at least in what's reported to us. It's not exclusively happening to black people. (coughs) So, this um, guy, gets pulled over, you see dash cam video, hands up, police break his glass, this is in the States. Yeah, listen, get your hands up, they're just shouting, they're just shouting, 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 shouting. The guy's officer's punching the guy in his face, he elbows him in his face, then he starts shouting, why are you reaching for my gun, why are you reaching for my gun, he's not reaching for, his hands are up. Drag him out the car, get him on the floor, beat him up, guns pointed at him. And then they charge him with false charges. He's arrested. He he gets um, taken in. They have one set of dash cam videos. um, And on the basis of that alone, and the way the officers were behaving, he was finished. Even his lawyer was just like, I don't even believe your story. I I, I I can't help you kind of thing. He admitted that. But then some dashcam footage from a second vehicle was came to light and it demonstrated how he was completely compliant and so on. And as a result, all charges against him were dropped and then charges were taken against the officers. And the uh, interviewer said to him, so what if that dashcam footage didn't um, surface. What would have happened? He said, I would have been, I'd, I'd be finished. I'd be in jail. I didn't have the price to, to be able to fight this, this case and fight the law enforcement, um, the police department, and I was finished. I was going to jail. The poor are readily and easily oppressed, and yet God takes up the plight of the oppressed. God sees injustice And it grieves his heart. And so, let us not be guilty of being an oppressor. Let us not be guilty of dishonoring those who are made in God's image, in God's likeness. Those whom, remember we're talking about, this is an in-house conversation. This is amongst Christians. Even to the point where in this situation, they're ready to show favor to those who, you have to understand, in, in these days, the Jewish establishment persecuted Christian Jews, which is who, those, those who were the first Christians were Jews. We see this in Acts. Paul, who was then called Saul, was receiving certificates from the Sanhedrin to round up Christians anywhere he finds them and kill them. Same time period. Those with money and power were often the ones who were persecuting Christians. And yet, there would be those who would show favor to them, despite the fact that they were the ones who were actually oppressing them and dragging them into court and blaspheming the name of Christ. Imagine that, showing favor to your persecutor and oppressor over your own brother and sister. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You see, Jesus made it explicitly clear that this is what he has called us to. John thirteen, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also you also are to love one another. With that same sacrificial, seeking the betterment of others, with that same love, we're to love one another. In fact, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. If anyone says, 1 John 4, 20 says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You don't know what God's like. God could be more like your brother than you actually realize. And yet, you got no time. You got no love. You're partial against. But if you show partiality, James 2, verse 9, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable. For all of it. Okay, so I have a, 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 a chain. You, you've seen those big ship's chains. Um, cruise liner, huge shackles linked together, connected to the anchor. How many of those links have to break in order for that chain to become useless? Just one. No matter how big the other links are and how well secured they are, You break one link and the whole thing becomes useless. And this is what we're being reminded of here. That according to the law, and where it here says um, the the whole law it's speaking of the commandments. If you break one of them, it's like breaking the link in a chain. You're guilt, you're breaking them all. It's just demonstrated that our hearts are sinful. And we're in need of Transformation within. And so we're regarded as a sinner, accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice, this part was prefaced by the fact that if we show partiality, we're committing sin. And we might think, well, you know, that's not as bad as murder. It's not as bad as adultery. But James is saying, listen, your your self-righteousness does not excuse you. In the sight of God, it's just as bad. And so the admonition, admonition at the end. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now what does that mean? First of all, it means talk the talk and walk the walk. Don't change your tune. Don't don't change your speech. Don't excuse verbally your partiality. Continue to recognize and acknowledge that it's a sin but also live like that. And then we see this, these two words that are put together in a way that seem almost conflicting. The law of liberty. The law of liberty. The law of liberty. That doesn't even sound like it works together. And yet we recognize that in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from the dictates of the law of Moses. Moses. We are no longer under condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, we've been set free from the dictates and condemnation of the law of Moses. But we've been brought into the royal law, the law of Christ, which is to love one another. Now, when we're unfaithful to the law of Christ, because of Christ's atoning work for us, It doesn't mean that every time we sin, we're going to end up in hell and we need to get saved again. No, we have been set at liberty. We have been set free through Jesus Christ. And yet we are under the law of liberty, which is the law of love, to love one another. And so when we're... Considering our relationships with one another, we should be asking, is that loving to my brother? Is that loving to my sister? If I treat this person in this way, you know, situations, people will walk up to those having a conversation and they will just say hello to one person and ignore others. I mean, not only is that rude, but it's sinful. And it's hurtful. And you're like, but hold on a second. That's where we're supposed to be all like church family here. We're all kind of on the same page. And you're just going to pretend, just talk as if I'm not even there. And in that moment, you have to ask yourself is that loving towards my brother or sister who's standing there experiencing that? Is, am I really showing them love in treating them in that way? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And the reality is that despite the fact that we are no longer under condemnation, we are no longer in fear of hell, we've been set free. There is a judgment seat for the believer. There is a judgment seat for the Christian. Where we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in that, we will give an account to Jesus. Not unto condemnation, but for the purposes of evaluation. So what did you do with this life that I gave you? What did you do with this freedom? What did you do with this this, this gift of eternal life that I gave you? How did you bring glory to my name? For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, at that point, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not in fear of going to hell but to ascertain what rewards will we receive for our life lived on this earth. And there will be those who will receive rewards, and there will be those of us who will lose rewards because of the fact that actually we were unfaithful, because we continued in sin, because we were bad men towards other people. We were partial. And so know that we will experience that judgment. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be evaluated by Jesus, our Savior. The notion of standing before the Lord who saved us, knowing that we're completely unworthy, and yet he would even consider to give us rewards, in and of itself doesn't make sense to me. We never deserve salvation to deserve rewards. And yet in that moment to know that I failed him, And, you see, the thing is, the scripture makes it clear that when the believers receive those rewards, these crowns, we'll throw them before at his feet, and we will take those and use them to honor him. And I'm standing there with nothing by which I can honor the Lord in that moment. And so... Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Even if a person deserves to be ill-treated, we are to show mercy. See, mercy is different to grace. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. They deserve punishment. I receive mercy from God. I should be punished, cremated, finished. As one brother said, I should be sent to the lowest part of hell. And yet, God has not purpose to give me that because of Christ. That's mercy. Grace is then God offering me heaven. He could have left it at that. I'm not going to give you hell, that's fine. But he says, actually, I'm actually going to go beyond that and I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. That's grace. Mercy. Even if someone deserves to be ill-treated, somebody's genuinely hacked you off. They've ill-treated you and you feel like I have every right to just ignore you, you're dead to me, Christian or not, church family or not, we're to show mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if you're a believer in the building today, you can raise your hand and say, Amen, I know that. Because mercy has triumphed in my life. Over the judgment that I should have received. So I'm going to ask the team to come back as we finish now. And I would say, how are you showing partiality? How are you guilty of having shown partiality? whether it's people because they're not on the the same level as you in terms of their career aspirations, their academic ability, whether it's some kind of cultural sensibility that doesn't agree with you or please you, whether you're partial to those who are able to benefit you, How have you been guilty of showing partiality? How have you had an attitude of partiality in your heart? Because we're called to repent. Those who genuinely hold faith in Christ, the Lord of glory, who know what it means to have received mercy and grace, to have been received and accepted when we should have been rejected, have no excuse, have no justification in showing partiality against others. The church is a place where, and we see glimpses of it, where there's just real love and embracing. Where there's just real acceptance for those who are in Christ and openness to those who are not, that they might see the love we have for one another. And it's something that we need to work at. It's something that we need to really consistently be mindful of. Because even in response to this, you know, at the end, here everybody might get up and start talking to someone you've never spoken to before. And that's this week. And then next week, what happens? Things kind of dwindle. And in two weeks' time, we're back to where we were at. God forbid. And even if it means, you know what, if we see somebody acting kind of off-key with someone else and showing a level of partiality, we might, not, we might need to speak to them in love. Because it affects our church family, it affects our church community. These are seeds of Discord that need to be addressed if we're gonna truly be a healthy church. Amen? This time. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.